Hey everyone, welcome to the show. This week's episode is brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. Brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat flip-flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. So, yeah, we were just talking, um, we were just talking about, a little bit about your son, because he, he's been hanging out with us and kind of doing some stuff because he has his own nonprofit, um, Play for Honor, mm-hmm. and he does stuff with Honor House, but I kind of, that's how I found out about you was... Through your son, Matt had come to me for Brass and Unity, for a charity. For He said, hey, we're doing this hockey thing for Honor House. And I remember saying, I don't, I don't play hockey anymore. I'm not in high school. And um, that's all, because that's the only time I played. I did not play. In Canada, everybody's supposed to play hockey. And <laughs> I don't <laughs> play very much. I, I taught tykes enough that I could, like, handle uh, a puck and I could stick handle a little but if you put me in full gear I just seem to like flop it's, it was really embarrassing but the point is I did it anyway I found out about your son because of that and then what I I found out later was he goes oh my mom's a cop and I said what your mom's a narc and he's like yeah and I was like oh I had no idea he's like yeah she's RCMP she's actually kind of cool and then he <laughs> and then I was like oh okay and then he's like, her name's Janet, and you need to meet her. And so I was like, I need to meet Janet. And then I met Janet, and now here's Janet Northrop. Hello. Hello. It's awesome to be here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, so, I'm so excited you're here. You came to my 24-hour rowathon. Yes. Yes, you did. You came to my 24-hour rowathon um, that we did with Fire Career Prep and uh, Trading Post, and I think it was the, Lang- uh, the Langley, was it Langley Town? Yes. Yeah, you know better than I do. They get really cranky when you say city, and they... There's yes, township people. There are boundaries for them. <laughs> There's boundaries for everybody, but they take it too far. They get like cranky with it. And I and I don't understand it, but they do. The point is, we did an event, you came, you rode, you were a champion, and you rode for an hour, and it was decent. You were going at a good pace. I was impressed. Thanks. I was having fun. It makes it it makes it easier one for when the charity you're raising the funds for mm-hmm. um doing something like that you i mean it's just you're willing to do it because of what they do for first responders and military and corrections and stuff like that so mm-hmm. happy to do it uh, i think you're the champion because i heard you did s- numerous hours of seven. rowing <laughs> seven um, i did seven you did seven? I did seven. Yeah, when Matthew told me, I was like, oh my goodness. It wasn't just me. James did, I think James did eight or nine. 
I ended up doing seven. He's the guy that we we, we co-host this event together with Friar Career Prep, and he's uh, he's a British, uh, he's a retired British Royal Marine, Special Forces mm-hmm. guy, um, and he he accurately on on repeat reminds me that the British are better than the American Canadian Special Forces. Like it's like his thing. It's like you can't be in the room without it happening once. And anyway, he does this great event, and um, it's it's funny because people underestimate what rowing for an hour is. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, there's no question when you row right. When you row right. (laughs) When you row accurately and not like a goon. Yeah. It does. It makes a difference. And it's like, you have to go in knowing that there's going to be really sore muscles the next day. Oh my God. So many sore muscles. You know what it was? It was my ass. Well, yeah. Sitting in that seat, like yeah. even, I mean, I was only an hour, right? But yeah, but you were going. You weren't, you weren't a, slouching. Yeah, but you weren't slouching either. And I'd I only done band. one hour. Okay. Well, maybe when you and I were rowing at the same time. Right. When we were in witness of one another. We were, presence. we were at a steady pace. We were showing James up. No question. The right. boys were lacking, but yeah. they were lacking hard, <laughs> super hard. And throughout that whole time, we were also speaking with the public and doing a great job. Yeah, well, that's kind of that's kind of the point of the job, right? Is my job is part of what I do is to I have to be present during these events, and I have to still want to talk to people. And unfortunately, getting sweaty and then drinking beer doesn't always make for like the best version of myself. And then everybody gets that version of myself at the event. So it's a good time. You guys should have all come. You should be jealous you missed it. I would be. It was at the Fort Langley Trading Post. I was really grateful for that opportunity. But anyway, my point is, is I found out and he was like, she's going to come. And you and I had never really met. No. And Matt talks about you a lot in the work that you do. And he goes, you know, she's, she's not a normal cop. I love, I love when people talk about cops this way. But not a normal cop. Like not like just like drive around cop. Not like a traffic cop. And I was like, are you like insulting those cops? And they're like, no, I would never. But, but I also kind of mean it when I say it. And so he was like, you're a combined forces special enforcement unit. We are part of it. You are part the of job it. that I do is part of that. That's our um, umbrella. So it com- CFSEU, so combined forces special enforcement unit. Can we talk about that name and who, how atrocious that is to say? We all say that. It is, it is a mouthful. There's no what? question. And it's an umbrella under organized crime agency, so okay. OCA. And um, combined forces special enforcement unit is um, literally combined forces. So there's over 14 different policing agencies that are part of CFSEU and it's the Provincial Anti-Gang Task Force so there are several umbrellas for that so you have your enforcement side you have your investigative side you have your secret side you have the quiet side (laughs) yeah the quiet side of things and then you have um, our program which is called gang enforcement um, or pardon me gang intervention and exit team so we actually don't do any enforcement, okay. and we don't do any investigation. Uh, it's very unique. But you're the police. Correct. So what do you do? It's an awesome, awesome question because we work, it, it, the sole purpose of our unit, it's very unique in North America because we're a combined unit of civilian case managers. So 
Um, they're not sworn officers, but their experience in the civilian side of things, in working with individuals, um, a lot of a counseling experience, a lot of maybe on the social work side, on the trauma side, their knowledge and experience that they bring is from the trauma side of the house. Okay. And they combine that with our policing side of the house in understanding um, threats, safety issues. Um, that piece of it in where they're coming from because our unit is there for individuals who want to get out or are out but are vulnerable to going back in mm -hmm. or um, maybe just hanging around people that are associated and are being recruited to be you know to to get into that lifestyle mm -hmm. girlfriends um, mm. of individuals that are involved so any anybody that has any type of gang association um, gang part of a gang just associated to somebody that is to girlfriends to uh, drug trafficking right at the low level of dial-a-doping um, what is dial-a-doping so dial-a-doping is pretty much like ordering a pizza what you phone up a number and you, you say what you want and they'll say okay meet me at this spot they do an exchange money for drugs okay so typically in a what we call it like a dial-a-doping operation there's a dial-a-dope line okay okay and then individuals drug users that need a fix will phone that line and they'll have somebody and they'll meet somebody so they've been given an order mm -hmm. generally there's what we call our RO nominees so registered owners of vehicles mm -hmm. um, that will register vehicles in their name but they don't mm -hmm. actually use them and they're used for the dial a dope line so then they'll have a driver and then they'll have somebody that is doing the operation so they'll pull up to a stop 30 not even 30 seconds 20 seconds it's a handoff and they go on to the next delivery so at any point in time and we we talk to the individuals about that process you don't know who you're getting right you don't know you only know that the individual you're meeting has an addiction and is looking for a fix okay that individual could be the sweetest person but the drugs are dictating what they do. Mm -hmm. The addiction is dictating what they do. So they could be violent. They could be at such a low where they have a weapon and will threaten you. It mm -hmm. could be a needle, knife, gun, any type of weapon. They could threaten you at any given point in time. When you stop, your life's in danger. Are they aware, do you think of these people that they're recruiting to take the vehicles and put them in their names and then act on behalf of them, do you think that they really understand the danger that they're putting themselves in? Well, the, the registered owners are not physically putting themselves in danger. Okay. It's the drivers and the passengers. Okay, so the driver and the passengers. Yeah, so the drivers and the passengers generally, some will know, some won't. Mm -hmm. um, when they get recruited in, like any business, 
they may not necessarily be told the bad things that come along with the business. They're only told the good things. Okay. So look, here's some easy money. Um, they'll flash the, the dough. They'll flash the bling, uh, the vehicles. They'll draw them in and when we you, have your back. When you say them, are you saying, are they going to high schools? Are these going to underprivileged kids that are already low stature, that are easy targets? Are they family members? Where are they recruiting these people from? Everywhere. It feels wild yes. because we're in Vancouver. And Correct. I feel like there's only so... It just... We're such a small city. Mm-hmm. The... I don't... I guess I'm not down there enough to see mm-hmm. it. It happens everywhere. And, and every individual potentially is vulnerable. Uh, it doesn't matter about your socioeconomic background, um, your family life, uh, your social life at school, at any point in time, a person can be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, trauma. Trauma affects everybody differently. We have all experienced trauma. And so it's about the need. Somebody has a need. And if it's not being filled in, in a safe environment, they potentially find it in an unsafe environment because they will take the time to draw individuals in drug associated individuals gang associated individuals plan they want to make money it is a business for them they will plan they will include them they will make uh, younger people feel welcome take them under their wing and draw them in Buy them food. They may not necessarily buy them big stuff at the at the they're, beginning. They're grooming them. Exactly. And and the plan is the future for them. What money can those ones make for them? And if they do well, I'm assuming they move them up in the in the chain. It's so dependent on the individual and the drive and if the individual wants it. Like we've we've potentially had clients where we'll approach them. And they decline us and say, you know, thanks for thinking of me, but I'm good. I like what I do. Yeah. What can you say to that? (laughs) Yeah, you're competing with um, money and resources and power. Mm -hmm. And those are all addictive things to people. And they are. And depending on where that individual is in their life and what they are or are not getting in their home life, they may be getting from these individuals. It may not be healthy for them, but they're still getting what they feel they need. Right. So we have to try and combat that. And that's potentially what our program does and the uniqueness in having it combined for safety reasons with policing and case managers and in, in putting us together, having a safe environment to support these individuals in trying to get out, trying to stay away, um, letting them know that they don't have to do it on their own, letting them know there's other healthy options that are available to them, but they also have to put in the work. Right. Because it is a voluntary program. So it is tough because we will get families um, 
calling in for their children and I say children and those ages range we we've had as young as 12 and as old as 46 and we've had parents phone in for 28 year olds we've had parents phone in for 12 year olds um, and explaining to the parents that we can't make the individual take our supports mm-hmm we can only have a conversation with them and share our experiences uh, around what we've learned Mm -hmm. through previous clients the reality of what this is and like for example the younger you are the more they may not really have an understanding of everything that comes the baggage that comes along with selling dope yeah it's not just as much it's not just um hey go sell this to this guy and move on there's there's grooming there's time there's an investment Mm -hmm. put into that person and if the parent is unaware that it's happening how Mm -hmm. do you combat that and so we try and educate so we have we have our portion where we work with clients Mm -hmm. to support them and I can talk a bit about those supports, but we also have an educational side where we do, uh, we'll go out to schools, we will talk, we have an N-Gang Life presentation that we will present to students, and we actually just finished doing a, um, a parent workshop in conjunction with Safe Schools in Surrey that was a series of workshops in I think oh there were seven or eight I believe workshops um, that we participated in with their program in the Surrey School District and we combined with a counselor and um, the outreach worker and our program and kind of talked with the parents how to try to be proactive are the parents in your opinion in that area or that district that you're having these conversations, are they, this is gonna, how do I word this right? Because I, I really am, I'm genuinely curious. We have a really high, high immigrant population mm-hmm. density in Surrey. And a lot of people that have come over from other countries are new Canadians. And I don't know if Surrey feels like it's an opportunistic area for gangs to target because individuals have not experienced or had the threat of something like a gang violence or pulling their children into gangs, possibly when they were living in India or when they were living um, in some other country that they decided to immigrate from. Because what is the Surrey population predominantly? So if you could... um... I don't, I don't know specific no, I don't need statistics. Specific. Listen, I've said way is there, wrong things before. Oh, yeah. It's fine. Because <laughs> um, we actually are a provincial agency. So Surrey is one of the areas that we do cover. Right now, we have manpower to cover the lower mainland. Okay, so spe- let's speak specifically, specifically of Surrey because that is sure. a very, I know, there is a high-density issue there with gang violence. And I know it because yes. it's bled over into... Uh, our offices it's yes. bled over into my husband's offices it's bled over to uh two streets up from my house so like i've i understand there is i'm not trying to mm-hmm. cherry pick anyone just nope. using them as an example mm-hmm. 
I'm, it's it's Middle Eastern predominant based. South Asian. Yes. Uh, there's a fair amount of South Asian, Middle Eastern, fair amount of Caucasian, uh, typical like third, fourth generation Canadian. Yeah. Um, there is a mixture. Is it, It's a little higher maybe in the South Asian culture right now mm-hmm. because they're so vulnerable. That's what I'm saying. I so feel like vulnerable. they're so vulnerable that... They, I wonder when you're talking to these parents, are they just not aware that this is a thing that is happening or could happen so they can't combat it? It's awareness is definitely a big issue. Family dynamics, Mm -hmm. culture change. Yes. And understanding. So when you look at the numerous different, like we call it in the policing world, totality of all the information. Right. Um, extremely vulnerable, especially if they are new immigrants wanting to fit in Mm -hmm. to a new society, uh, a new country, a new country's traditions, uh, different way of policing, different way of living. It is I can't imagine taking myself and say moving to the Punjabi state Can you imagine? and starting all over and learning the customs and the way of life language customs way of life is just daunting it's not the <laughs> language that that is scary to me I feel like language is a barrier yes but I think it's a teachable learnable what freaks mm-hmm. me out and gives me anxiety when I'm in another culture is 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 disrespecting the customs unintentionally just because I didn't know any better. And that I know has happened to me overseas. I know I've done it. Um, so I've done it once out of anger because I knew how angry it would make someone, but I've also done it because of just very uneducated before a deployment. It, it happens. But here I can imagine that being one of the hardest things to assimilate. Absolutely. Like that is, it's so unknown for them and and, I mean we'll go uh, our unit is multicultural thankfully yes and so we have some each member brings um, phenomenal amount of experience knowledge um, in their area and so part of it is language and understanding culture right which is very helpful when you're going into um, a, pot- a meet with a potential client where language is different and culture is different. For me, I might go in and, like you say, step on toes because I don't mm-hmm. know or understand the culture. And my coworker may go, like, hang on, hang on. Yeah, like, hold tight there. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and understanding that this is maybe why they respond or say what they say or do what they do, because in, in this culture, this is the norm. Oh, And so 100%. it's really helpful because then we get educated, which in turn helps us help the client. Um in and they really appreciate it because then when you start to be able to have that conversation understanding where they're coming from Mm -hmm. then to be able to explain okay from your 
view, we get this piece. So then understanding now from, say, a BC policing perspective, this is what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. And this is why. And this is what's different in our country. Mm -hmm. So that then they have a better understanding and feel a little more comfortable moving forward. They, they feel it. I feel like there'd be a sense of respect that you've taken the time to understand their side and maybe why they're feeling that way. And when you vocalize that to them, mm -hmm. they're like, okay, these people genuinely want the best for me. They're not just trying to change me and say, I need to be mm -hmm. this white Canadian who needs to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. I can still be myself. I just didn't understand maybe that was not the right thing to be doing. Mm -hmm. This is maybe how I survived when I lived somewhere else because let's be honest, when you're immigrating from somewhere, you're, it's, it's almost like you're doing it for one of three things. You're doing it because you're coming from a war-torn area mm -hmm. and you're a refugee and you're trying to save your family. You're coming because you have a lot of money and you see opportunity here and your family was lucky enough to send you or you mm -hmm. were the one from the family that was sent. Mm -hmm. um, or you've come over with everyone and it's just a shock to the system for mm -hmm. everyone. And so I can imagine there is a huge subset of individuals that that is probably the main reason they've fallen into some of this gang activity. And that definitely is a piece of it. Um, ultimately, there's, we, there's multitudes of reasons for falling into that, but vulnerability mm -hmm. for immigrants is definitely high up there. Yeah, I can. I no can question. That. And then if they've experienced trauma, like war torn countries, um, have in my work over my policing experience, I've worked with youth that have been considered toy soldiers. Um, and so there's that trauma. Then there can be internal family trauma um, from experiences from then versus um, alcohol and drug trauma. It could be multi-generational addiction issues. And then you're looking at things like, uh, what is it? Um uh, alcohol fetal syndrome. Oh yeah. The, so there's the, the, oh, no scientists here, but yes, there is the, the, the alcohol fetal syndrome. A lot of the, uh, narcotic, mm -hmm. um, addiction born, um, multi, with that. That multi-generational, right? Yeah. So is the, uh, is there, um, an effect like oh. if a child was born with fetal alcohol syndrome, does does it mean that they're going to go down that road? No. Does it mean they're more vulnerable? Potentially, yes. yes. But it doesn't mean every, as soon as you, if you've been diagnosed with that, it doesn't mean that you're... No, I'm saying... And, and that's... Like, yeah, I'm thinking... But from it like is a broader perspective. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking from a, if you come from a family who has intergenerational mm -hmm. trauma that has been brought down through either drug addiction or alcohol abuse, mm -hmm. if you're born to parents who are still suffering... Mm -hmm. You know, there's that component of you've already kind of been dealt a very difficult hand from birth, and now you're having to maybe not have such a solid foundation in mm -hmm. at home. It just mm -hmm. there's so many things that could make a human being vulnerable. Absolutely, and that is your you are right because when you look at the multi generational, um, and I wish I had the word for it, but I know one of our case managers was talking to when 
they were kind of doing a, a, a trauma presentation for us. And they were talking about the potential exists in the multi-generational uh, trauma that it can be genetically passed down. Addiction? The trauma piece. I down but that potential exists yeah. so then that part of the person now born the child is has that in them mm -hmm. but does that mean they're automatically going to go down that road not necessarily because we don't always understand why two people can experience the same trauma mm -hmm. and one goes down road a and one goes down road b Oh. and experiences it so differently and what is the resiliency where is it coming from that it worked great for say you know person a but person e ended up with no resiliency we i talk about that a lot um actually i'm glad that you brought that up i talk about that quite frequently about individuals and this perception of individuals handling trauma a certain way because of X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And it's that cup theory, right? Why, mm -hmm. what, what can, why is somebody's cup so much bigger than another individual? It's like you're standing, you can be in that, again, I've had this conversation with Jocko, you can be standing right beside the same person and see something that when you're in a traumatic situation that's different than the person in, right beside you. It's just, mm -hmm. it's the, we don't understand the brain to understand why these things happen. But what we do know is that the trauma affects everyone differently and we do know now that trauma can be passed on i think it's been proven and we know there are ways to combat that but if you're in a cycle and you have no way of getting out how do you get out what is the path to getting out if somebody's listening is like what how do you get out of this cycle so in our program for individuals that are, you know, being groomed or fully full on in it, mm -hmm. what we explain to them is you don't have to do it alone. There are options. And in our program, the case managers are like, they're basically the eyes and ears in, in support in the research and the support in looking for what our clients need. So I'll kind of give you our process. Yes. So we'll get, uh, anybody can refer and we'll receive a referral and it gets assigned to a member. Once the member receives a referral, we do our background checks. We delve in to see, does this individual fit our mandate? Because we are provincially funded, so we do have a mandate in order to be able to function um, within our funding. So if they fit our mandate, then we have a member and a case manager assigned to the client. So we have partnerships. Okay. We then, depending on if it was a referral through an agency, a parent, a relative, a friend versus the individual, 
So in that case, what we do is we would connect with those individuals that referred, could be a probation officer, could be corrections. We will connect with them, get as much knowledge and understanding of this individual as possible, and then arrange to sit down and do an in-person meet with the client. And what if the client isn't aware this is happening? So there's a couple, there's a couple options. I, I'm a firm believer in giving them a heads up. Okay. Because just of my personal experience, um, forewarned, I will tell them right up front, I don't lie to you. You may not like what I say, mm -hmm. but I, you can at least be comfortable in knowing I'm telling you the truth. So if I'm coming to see you, I'll tell you and I'll let you know you're not in trouble. I am not arresting you because yes, I am a police officer. Mm -hmm. I'm bringing a case manager with me. We are a team. This, we want to talk to you because there's some concerns. So we sometimes can have that conversation with the individual. Sometimes the family members have such a tenuous um, string of attachment with the cl potential client that it's very um, tenuous at best. So they don't want to burn that. Okay, so they're afraid of losing that. Exactly. So we respect that and find a way where we can approach those individuals to be able to say, hey, knock, knock, um, this is who we are. And right away, 99.9% .9 of us are very clear you're not in trouble. Yeah, we're not arresting you, just don't pull a gun. <laughs> yeah, and then we just want 10 minutes of your time. We want to explain why we're concerned and why we're here. Should just be worried that we're so, on our radar at all at this it, point. And, and we do, we talk about that, why we're concerned. Because it's important for them to understand this isn't the hammer, right. this isn't the enforcement. Mm -hmm. This is the, wait a minute, you're a human being that's going down a really dangerous road. We actually care about the fact that we're losing our people to this lifestyle. We're sick and tired of losing sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, mm -hmm. aunts, uncles, parents to this lifestyle. And we're here to let you know that supports exist. Do you think it's a lack of, uh, again, I know you think this, but like for, <laughs> for the individual, it, it, do you think it's just a lack of them not realizing they have the resources that they can go to? Some, yes. Some think that they're, they're in, all of a sudden they're too, in too far and there's no way out. Okay. And threats of violence, very typical. Um, Threats of debt, um, typical. Threats to family members, mm -hmm. happens. So there's there's all kinds of different reasons where they ended up getting sucked in quicker than they can blink. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they go out, they sell dope, and they get stopped by the police. And all of a sudden they're their boss, their money, and drugs gets taken. 
the cell phones get taken. Potentially, the vehicle gets taken under civil forfeiture. So now, mm -hmm. they're in debt, and they're owned. Their boss says, you owe me. And a lot of times, those guys will say, show me your papers. I want to know it was the cops that took your stuff. Oh, they think they're, that they would be robbing them. Absolutely. Yeah, because there are, it's been known to happen where your boss will set you up to, to test you? get you robbed to now own you because you have a debt. Oh, so it's a tactic they use. Absolutely. Oh. And, and that's real. Like, those are things that previous clients have shared with us. This isn't us just making it up. This is real life experience where clients have shared this with us. So we will go in and we'll sit down with the client. And so then we have to, we have the, all the logistics of um, thinking about, okay, how old is the client? Is the client a youth? Is the client an adult? Uh, do we have to share with a parent? Do we not share? And we have to watch what we say. Um, so we have to look at all those dynamics as well because prior to meeting them, we, the reason for us to do all that background is because we have individuals, the case managers are going in to work with these people. We need to make sure they're safe. So we do a lot of that safety checks and um, safety planning because do we need overwatch? Do we need two for overwatch? Do it, does it need to be overt or covert? How do we uh, approach? Where do we approach? So we do all this safety planning for ourselves as well as the potential client to ensure that nobody knows we're speaking to them because that's a safety issue because that leads to where people think they're talking to the cops. That's another aside because that's also part of what we talk about to the client. Um, so we do all of that planning before we will set up a meet to, to speak with the individual. And then we'll sit down and with what we consider newbies, we'll go in depth into understanding the dark side of going down that path versus all the the stuff that you know the gang members or, or drug bosses have shared with them about oh look at what you get here's the good stuff mm -hmm. um we'll go down the road of especially with the younger ones that really are very naive um and share right down to are you prepared to have a bottle of uh, Vaseline in the center console so that if you're stopped by the police, mm -hmm. you take a scoop of that and you put the drugs up your butt. Mm -hmm. Because that is real. That is the expectation. And I mean, obviously, the younger ones get pretty darn squirmy when you start talking about private parts. Because like they're reality. just like, whoa. But I, I mean, we're just a matter of fact. Like, it's not judgment. It's just, this is real. This is part of what to expect, mm -hmm. what you're going to be told from the boss. And we share that with them and they kind of go like, like a deer caught in your headlights. Mm -hmm. For the younger ones that aren't street smart, that haven't been, the dark side hasn't been shared with them. 
And so we'll share that piece. We'll say, like, here's a day in the life of a dial-a-doper. This is what to expect. And it's not enjoyable. So we'll talk about that piece. We'll talk about how they try and draw you in by the attachments, by making you feel like you're part of a, a brotherhood, um, your family now, we have your back. And we talk about the fact that when push comes to shove, it's a business. That is the bottom line. They want to make money. You make money for them. Right. So that's what it boils down to. So then we say, okay, so we've given you all of the negative stuff, but we're also here to share positive stuff. So on the policing side of things, we explain to them that we are not an enforcement team. We are not an investigative team. We are not here to dig up the dirt on who's your boss, where the drug stash house is, where the reload house is, any of that stuff. We, in fact, if you start talking detail about your past in specifics, we're like, whoa, 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 no, stop, stop talking. We will put the brakes on. What, is it not useful to take that information from them, though? Not specifically in our job. So we keep a very clear line in order to keep the integrity of our program and earn the trust of our clients. You can't go there. They need to know we won't go there. And what if they ask, though, to go Bingo. there? Ah, they have so, to initiate. So good question. If they want to go down that path, we are very clear with them. Okay, we can introduce you to a different unit. Okay. And then that's it. Oh, they we, get cut. You can't we, keep going. No, no. We can work with them, but we do not discuss that. Oh. We, that, whether or not you go down that path, that is your choice. Okay. Do not talk about it. But it's not mandatory to be. Absolutely not. And we tell them that whether or not you want to share with somebody else, if you want to share, we can introduce you and then we just keep it separate. Right. But it doesn't matter what you do without them. We can continue on. Our supporting you is not on whether or not you share. Yeah, it's not conditional. There is no conditions other than you want the support because it's a voluntary program mm -hmm. and you put some effort in. Because the bottom line is we can put all these supports in place for you. But you have to want to make those changes. You have to want to take the steps and put the work in with us. It's basically the old adage where it takes a village to raise a child. Mm -hmm. It takes a village to support an individual to get out or stay out. And we recognize that. And we're okay with that. So we will, as long as that client wants us in their life, we're there. But they don't, can't use us in court because it's not safe. I was just going to say. So they could be facing um, manslaughter charges. They could be facing um, purpose, uh, possession for the purposes of trafficking. They could be uh, facing um, robbery, break and enter, um, intimidation. They could be facing all kinds of charges, but they cannot speak to us in court. It is not safe. 
Yeah, my, my thought on that would be is obviously they I could see them wanting to speak of you guys in court yep. just because it, it shows um, that you're taking initiative to better your life and that Absolutely. helps you in a, court ca- in a court case. But do have you had an incident where the um, individual and their lawyers have not and kind of let that slip? Because that puts you guys at risk. Yes. Mm. Thankfully, it was a closed court. Okay. Um, yeah, it has happened, and we learn from these experiences, we learn right? From our and we were very, we were very thankful uh, that it was in a closed court. So um, we had a conversation uh, because the the probation officer had called me and went, uh, "Oops, Janet, oh, I think I made a mistake." So shared with me what happened and I said okay um so we need to have a conversation with crown counsel and defense counsel like immediately yes <laughs> so we did uh and explain the circumstances so then crown counsel had a conversation with the judge and so moving forward this is something where we talk about probation officers are usually involved if they're put on bail or found guilty and given a sentence. So we do work with probation officers a lot. And so when you we have individuals that are working with us and making those steps to better themselves, there's things that the probation officer can say and, you know, reaching out to community supports actively working with community supports generic information that is still positive for the judge to understand they're making amends they are making changes in their life um but staying safe yeah so we're we talk to them right up front about that if they do have court cases we tell them up front like if you reached out to us because you thought you could use us we're te- we're we're nipping that in the bud right now I do, I do wonder if that is something that happens frequently because i can see it being an additive in wanting to sway a judge yes um not frequent but it does happen uh and we nip it in the bud and we tell them why and we like so it's up to you if you want to continue um with us you just need to know. And if you wish to part ways, that's okay too. Right. Like, we have zero judgment. We haven't walked in their shoes. We don't know what they've experienced in life. We're just letting them know the reality. And there are options, positive choices that they can make to help change their future path. I have a couple questions sure. about um, gangs in general. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously we know they exist in, in TV and all of those lovely things, film, like to portray them that they're like this fantastic thing. So I'm sure mm-hmm. that doesn't help the youth when they're watching TV. Like, that seems like it's a great idea. And it's an option just down the street. Mm, like, give that a go. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that doesn't help. But I do wonder, no. I do wonder in our speaking specifically about our area, who are the gangs in British Columbia? So, you know what? I'm not going to give them any airtime. 
Okay. They don't need it. How many do we have? They don't deserve it. How many do we have? There's enough. You know what? There's traditional... Right? There's traditional gangs. There's outlaw motorcycle gangs. Um, there's up-and-comers that want to put their name on a gang, mm. a group, um, to put an actual number... I don't know the actual number, but in the off the top of my head, gang, gang names that I can think of in numbers-wise, I can probably name 12 or 14 just off the top of my head. That's a significant amount of people. Yeah, right? Um, and for me, yes. I, are there names brought out in the media and whatnot? Yeah, but you know what? They don't deserve any airtime. So I'm, I'm surprised. Not, I'm not going to give it to them. And that's and I, I respect you for that. I'm surprised. I do wonder though. I see when you see something go on, mm-hmm. and they do just they outright talk about them, yes, by name. And I do yeah. wonder what their thought process is and why they think that's acceptable behavior. I get you have to accurately report the news, which frankly, I, I mean, are we really ever accurately reporting the news right now? I, no, we're not. Period. Across the board, it's bullshit. So it's hard when you see these people talking about talking about things and, and giving them airtime, like you said. Well, there are specific reasons and reasoning behind because there are times where it's important to document it and put it out there. And you'll notice, like we have um, CFSEU has a media uh, media. Um, section. Oh yeah, you're, you're gonna need one and, of those for you guys. Um, Sergeant Winpenny oversees that, and there are specific times where she needs to. It's important for her to speak to it because there may be a task force involved or something mm. along those lines. So it's very important that it's it's not carte blanche. That's just for me. It's just. In, in what I do right. and in, in what I speak, for me, I don't feel it's necessary. It's no value to you. Exactly. Right. And it doesn't necessarily help my clients in what I try to do for my clients. But in her job, in speaking for CFSEU, because she covers all of um, the, our gang intervention and exit team to the enforcement team to the media side to the investigative side uh, to we have a gaming enforcement under the umbrella of CFSEU. So, so she's she, the umbrella of CFSEU. Right. So there are times where it is important to do that. It's interesting because it's very rare that you'll hear the names, but when you do, it's it's the name is there, and they make yep. sure that they. It, and I can see that being a reason. Um, yep. I wonder because we we do live in a very multicultural province, very multicultural. We do, and it is it's dominant. It's like being in Toronto. Like we have everyone from everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a lot of issues with? other countries' gangs coming in to our provincial area? On the bigger picture, some. There, I mean, there are gangs that there's no borders per se. Um, do we see some starting to filter in from other countries? There is that. Do we see some filtering from our own country from back east? We see some of that. Oh, really? So we're always going to have a bit of that. 
coming in. BC has a very unique gang landscape. It is different than Toronto. Can you explain it, it a bit? You know what? I, I wish I could be clearer and give more clarity to it. We, it is it is constantly changing. It is not static. It is ever evolving. Um, and we do get a fair amount of uh, changeover, switching. You don't necessarily see that um, like in the States. Like in Chicago or in one of the... In LA, things like that. Territory is very divided and very specific. Very, very specific, very divided. And it, territory here, are there some territories? Absolutely. But there is spillage mm -hmm. it, from others into other territories. And, and it is very unique. So it isn't... We can't address it in any one way. You have to be very fluid with your attack. Yes. So for our enforcement investigative side, um, thinking outside the box mm -hmm. in very different ways. In our intervention and exiting side, we are continually looking at how can we make it more approachable for the client to engage with us. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, going back to when we were talking about sitting down with the clients and, and talking, so we have the safety side, we have the, as we call it, the housekeeping side, the policing side, and we let them know that um, nothing is anonymous. So we, everybody has a different idea of what privilege means. In the policing world, if they share something with us, we potentially may have to share it with another police officer. That's what we tell them. We cannot offer them anonymity. We cannot say it's off the record. Mm. If they share something specific with us, they potentially could be arrested for a new charge or they potentially could become a witness when they didn't want to be. Oh, so you're saying that they could be arrested for something they tell you if you let on and somebody decides I'm going to go arrest them for that now. If they share with our team something specific. Yeah. And that is why we are so clear with them. Mm -hmm. Don't share. Just don't Not tell with us. our unit. They just don't tell us. Yeah. Got it. If, if you want to speak with a different unit that's in a different position than us. Okay. Right. That, that, but that's not us. And that's why we tell you, don't share specifics. We can talk in general. Mm -hmm. You have General's to say, okay. in general. It's like, well, you know, what if somebody, you know, what if they did this? Or somebody, Hypothetically. you know, and, and we talk about those for them to understand the law. Because if they share with us, I have an obligation to share it, like say it's about an ongoing invest. Say for example, it's about a a murder, mm -hmm. and they share something specific about that. I you am have obligated to then speak with the investigator, the lead investigator on that file, and share that information. 
whether they like it or not. Mm-hmm. So we are very clear with them. You need to be aware of your rights. You need to know nothing's anonymous with us. So don't talk specifics. We're here to support you in moving forward into getting you out of that lifestyle. Right. If you're dealing with court stuff, we don't talk about that file. We don't talk about what happened specifically in that file. That's between you and the lead investigator and your lawyer. We are very clear with them because we've had lawyers go, oh, you just want to, oh, whoa, my client's not talking to you. And we're like, okay, hang on. You need to know what our program is. Right. And we have very clear lines in order to keep the integrity of the program. Have you had a situation, whether you wanted to or not, where you've had to report something, that individual has then gone and had to be a witness to something and things get worse for that individual? So thankfully for me, knock wood, yeah, like no, they, they've listened. Um, okay, good. Come close in treading the line and it's like, I just like, I use my cop voice and go, stop talking, <laughs> like stop. And then I go and I remind them and then they go, Oh, oh yeah, oops, because they get comfortable oh. with you. They start to feel safe with you, and that just might slip out. Trust. Exactly. Right? And so we're, we make sure we will remind them, um, because we could have a lengthy relationship. There's, we've client for four years. Oh, wow. So um, we're very clear on that. We've had um, other um, members of our team have ha- experienced not a specific client themselves, but a parent and had to, had no other option. Um, but it was very clear with the, with the parent, um, and for safety purposes had to make sure that it was reported, um, and did the right thing in is as difficult as it was, it needed to be done because it was a safety and an immediate safety issue. So, um, it has happened. Um, a member's had to arrest an individual right in front of them. Okay. Um, because they chose to threaten somebody right in front of the officer. I mean, what are you doing? And like, there's no choice. It's a safety issue. So, are those hiccups there? Yes. Do we learn from them? Absolutely. And that's why we are so aware when we have these conversations mm-hmm. at the beginning of the relationship with the clients to make sure that there are clear boundaries for them. We want them to feel safe. We want them to trust again. We want them to feel secure. And so many of our clients have not had a good experience with police. We get that. Shocker. And and we get. They look at me and go, yeah, right. Yeah, like, who you're going to protect you're me from? You're a cop. I'm not going to believe you. Forget it. And, mm-hmm. and I look at them and I go, okay, no problem. But you know what? I'm okay with that because I haven't been in your shoes. I haven't experienced what you've experienced with other officers. In the same token, I don't mind taking the time to earn your trust. I'm okay with that. Yeah. But you also need to remember 
is every person I deal with the same? Mm-hmm. Or is every person I deal with respectful to me? No. But do I treat them negatively? Do I treat you negatively? When I come to the front door, do I take that experience and treat you in a negative way? And they're like, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. Like a child. Very begrudgingly, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. Thank you for being honest with me. And you know what? So we'll work through this together. Right. And, and I'm okay that you don't trust me. You're at least honest and upfront with me. And that's what you'll get from me. Right. So, and, and we explain that to the clients that we understand that piece and we're okay with that. Mm-hmm. We will work with that. Um, if you would rather just speak with the case manager, no problem. Because if you're okay with that piece, same thing goes for them. You cannot speak specifics because they're my partner. Right. So they would have to disclose it. Same as I would. So in that aspect, you need to know. You can't go tell them something in, in confidence mm-hmm. and them not share it with me. So we're really clear on our partnership around that piece. Yeah. But if you're more comfortable knowing that they're not a police officer and they're your case manager, and that means that you're going to actually get out, I'm quite all right with that. Mm-hmm. But where safety comes in, I will be there. Right. It's a different. It's a different conversation when you yes. have to. Yeah. When you have to uh, look at the reality of getting out of a gang. Yeah. So then we get our case managers, you know, talking about options and ideas, and and um, I mean, typically we look at counseling, trauma counseling. Um, p- potentially, there's financial barriers for counseling, and sometimes not. Uh, but counseling, we know, has a stigma. Mm-hmm. And breaking that stigma down for them is part of the battle. We will offer counseling if somebody uh, chooses to work with us. We are in a position where counseling is typical um, for most, but we can also offer it for the immediate family. Because we also understand it's not just a one-person circumstance. It's a family thing. It affects the whole family when an individual is trying to get out. Can I ask you about something about that? Absolutely. What's the the frequency that you, you have somebody that gets on your radar, not because of the family? What's the amount of times that you find somebody has said, hey, we have this kid or we have this person, and then you go to the family mm-hmm. and say, hey, we're working with your child to get them out of a gang. How often do, are they shocked that your their kid is in a gang? Probably close to half. Wow, that's really high. I would say, for the younger ones... Not necessarily the older ones, but the younger ones a little bit higher. Um, Simply because as a parent, it is very hard to look at your child and think that they would go down that path. Yeah, you're, you're not wrong. 
No, you're not So it is very hard for them. And and we'll go in and and we'll sit down. And and again, depending on the age and and for kids under 18, um, we can have a parent present and explain our program and everything. But we also ask the youth, hey, are you okay speaking with us? without the parent present. And what if the parent says, no, you can't talk to my kid without me present? Then what do you do in that situation? They're not in trouble. We're not arresting them. So So the kid can have the choice. Ultimately, we do still need to keep the parent informed because it's a youth. But because we are not arresting the child, we are not in, um, in the eyes of the law, we are preventative and supportive. So that choice is in the youth's hands. Okay, so that's, yeah. I always wonder, though, about those things because I know there's that rule, you cannot talk to a kid without the parent present, but what if the parent doesn't know the kids in the gang, and then you go, I just, it's such a sticky Mm -hmm. situation because it seems like, it seems like this, the, the gang task force has so much more on their plate when it comes to keeping people out on top of just handling the gangs and the violence that comes in and out the human trafficking the drug abuse the mm-hmm. the the sex abuse it, i i just wonder we're a very small we're a small province with not a lot of people and if we have that many gangs running in this area how do you how do you prevent this this you guys are one gang you're one task force right Mm-hmm. How many people are in this task force? You don't have to give me an exact number. Oh, I'm saying yeah. a ballpark. So we have, so um, our team, we have a corporal and a manager on the case manager side mm-hmm. that oversee all the admin side of things. Okay. Then we have a case manager supervisor and a corporal road supervisor, and they manage the teams that are frontline. And then in the teams, we have, let's see, uh, one, two, three, four, five case managers, frontline case managers, and then we have four frontline police officers okay so that makes up our team and that's for all of british columbia's gang enforcement so right now we are a provincial um, unit but we have the manpower to cover the lower mainland who covers outside the lower mainland so if we get calls from other areas, and we have, like, Prince George, Kelowna, yeah, uh, thinking... Terrace, um, 100 Mile, mm-hmm. and beyond, Fort St. John, like, we do get calls and concerns um, for other areas. So we'll try and connect them with local supports uh, to s- sort of get the ball rolling in kind of what they can do to help themselves in an area that we can't service simply because of manpower and finances. So if this is provincial mm-hmm. and you're RCMP, how are we not getting some of that federal money? So we, 
our pro- I say we, I'm a yeah. part of this now. Yeah. Our <laughs> program is a combination. So on the policing side of things, we have three officers that are RCMP and we have three officers that are part of the organized crime agency. So we have three that are provincial and three that are federal. So RCMP funds our positions in the unit. Why aren't we funding some of the unit? So I can't speak to the funding side of things. You're supposed to have all the answers. That is uh, going into my pocket of I don't know. We have, um, we in our case manager, manager, um, and our staff sergeant who oversees our program and the media side and, and our program, they work with the province and the RCMP around the funding piece. I am not um, literate enough to speak to that side of the house. Um, That is not my area of expertise and I don't want to speak out of turn about it. Fair enough. It is very convoluted. Yeah. Um, It is very um, labor intensive, but well worth it. The, the the reports that these individuals sit down and prepare from the statistics of our program to present to the the government for funding is phenomenal. It's extensive. It is extremely extensive. And uh, I am ever thankful that those individuals are in place to do that. Uh, the way their minds work and the funding side of things and how it works is just phenomenal. They are able to put together what is needed in order for us to get the funding we need to do this. And fingers crossed, we are trying to spread out. Good. They are looking at a needs assessment for other areas to branch out. So that is also on their plate in order to put those needs assessments together to uh, present to the province for funding for branching out. I suppose I ask because we hear a lot about, in the local area, we do hear a lot about the gang violence and we do hear Mm. that it is a very, out of control situation and on when when things pop off everyone's like it's out of control the gangs are you know leaking into areas they shouldn't be blah 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 and so we hear about the complaints of it and then i do wonder if if it's so severe and it's so um overwhelming to the population why isn't more federal funding being put towards i guess that's my question Mm -hmm. you can't you can't answer that for me but i do i am curious about it because if it, it seems to be such an issue, and then our Surrey mayor, who took the RCMP out of Surrey, if you guys are the ones that are servicing the Surrey area, how how are you allowed to do that if you're RCMP, just because you're attached to the, the province? Correct. Okay. Yeah, and because we were seconded, uh, the three of us, so it's one corporal and two uh, constables, 
um, were seconded into positions that are funded um, and supported by the RCMP. That's how we can be in those positions and OCA is uh, funded the other three members and then all of our case managers. So then they can't kick you out of Surrey? Even so we are part of uh, under the umbrella of E Division. Okay. And um, Organized Crime Agency works out of E Division, who is the head um, head of the umbrella mm -hmm. um, for Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit. And then under that, you have um, all of us playing nice in the sandbox, right? They, it's like over 14 different agencies working together to combat the the gang violence um, to interrupt it and suppress it uh, for BC. Isn't that wild to think it takes that many units to be able to, and it's still it, not it enough? It is, you know, um, it is ever evolving. Um, Do you want, let me they, ask you something. I know I'm going to interrupt you. That's okay. No, because I'm going to forget. Do you wonder if, because BC has such a different type of gang landscape and because it is constantly changing and it's very fluid, unlike other traditional mm -hmm. countries, do you wonder if that is why it seems like we have such a hard time getting a handle on it? That Yeah, that potential is definitely there as part of it. And I mean, let's face it, we are a government agency. Mm -hmm. There are rules and <laughs> rules and regulations in place for us to follow the law right mm -hmm. and we have we have a law in place that is in order for us to gather evidence and present it to crown for charge approval we have a higher standard people breaking the law i they don't follow rules. <laughs> they don't follow the law. So the hoops they jump through to do their business are far fewer than the hoops we have to jump through um, in order to hold them accountable for that. And the pace at which they go compared to what our justice system goes is a well, different thing. And you know, our justice system, it's difficult. There, There's no question they are overloaded um, and I you know what my hats off to them when they can get a big file through and charges are approved and following through and those individuals are held accountable it is such a phenomenal feeling I can't imagine um, because the amount of work that like our enforcement side our investigative side and our other units put into interrupting their business mm -hmm. is just mind-boggling. I have a girlfriend who was, uh, she's RCMP, and I remember very distinctly having a conversation with her at the beginning of one year, and then I think it was a good year and a half, almost 18 months, going up, went into two years, I believe, and it was one person, one case, it was one mm -hmm. situation, and the amount of paperwork, the amount of stakeouts, the amount of time and resource that went into just one huge file, making it to the point where the individual was actually arrested and charged, was 
astronomical. And it, 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 I do, <laughs> that's where I look at it. I go, how, how, how are we supposed to control this when it takes that level? The burden of proof mm -hmm. is so significant. I know that it's necessary to keep order and it's necessary to keep policing accountable, individuals accountable from not straying. But my God, that's got to be di diminishing a little bit sometimes. It can, it can be disappointing and a struggle because you, as a human being, I mean, if I make a mistake, I own it. Right. I'm a human being and I do make mistakes. And you know what? How am I going to learn if I don't own it? Exactly. So it's like, why can't these people just do that? But they don't think like I do, right? I know. And the process is different. And if we don't have these laws in place, what happens to our rights? Oh, and, and I can tell you what happens to our rights. It's easy. <laughs> We're Canadian. We've lost them. I know you're a cop, but have yeah. you not noticed that they're gone right now? And that's the difficulty in trying to find that balance. So when we work with clients, I may be hypervigilant in making sure that I respect those rights. For that very reason. I'm glad they matter to someone. Um, because if I'm being dealt with, I want my rights to be taken into consideration. So it is and can be a very frustrating process for officers that are in the position of enforcement and investigation. Because we don't have that piece, may not necessarily affect us the same way, but it does because we can have individuals where they're grooming clients and we're just like, right? Yeah. And it's like uniform, nail these guys yeah. because they don't care. They're interfering. And, and they're interfering with our clients and our clients are so vulnerable. Can you nail these guys? Yeah. And they'll try and they'll try. But because of the separate hoops that we have to jump through that are put in place for valid reasons, but have grown, because you're always going to have that fight of, uh, oh, the government uh, has too much leeway. Oh, the civilians have too much leeway. Um, they have too many rights. They get away with everything. They have too many rights. They get away with it. it, it it goes back and forth. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the balance is. And that's the difficulty. Like in my little world, in my little opinion, it is such a deep um, topic mm -hmm. that I know my bit of the law. I don't profess to know the court's law and how they have to deal with the process. Um, I know the basics from my side of things in trying to get Crown to approve charges because in BC, that's what we have to do. Police don't approve the charges. Crown does. So is that like that? Sorry. Is that like that in other provinces where is it just the police that have to do the charges? Um, I know in Saskatchewan, police um, present the charges. 
Because in Regina, we talked about the, the difference in BC and in Saskatchewan. There's not a lot going on uh, in Saskatchewan compared to here. Like, let's be honest <laughs> oh, with ourselves. Oh, yes, there is. Oh, is there? Are they just all farmers doing it? Uh, no. Oh, really? No. I'd like to learn about no. this. Because we Saskatchewan, get, though? We get cross-border gang-associated individuals coming out of corrections, um, I didn't think you could it, cross into Canada if you had a federal in BC. They can cross border. What? Uh, yes. I thought. Okay, hold up. <laughs> let me <laughs> let me educate you on where I've learned my education from. So there's this TV show. <laughs> I okay, thought, let me stop you there. I know, right? <laughs> That's not real. No, no shit. But do you do you not remember? Do you never hear a CBSA agent be like, "You have a you cannot come into the United States if you have." done anything chargeable explain okay. to me so cbsa has different powers than i do yeah because um, you guys get called in that is coming in from out of country i'm talking cross province cr cr okay provincial so yes we have yeah. it moving so we have the issues across canada but i'm yes. saying but they can't if you have a if you got a record so Coming into Canada, yeah. if you have a record, do they have the potential to stop you? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. If they get, if they find it. Oh, so it can just be really well hidden? <sighs> do individuals slip through the cracks, potentially? Absolutely. It happens. In any job any human does, Right. can that happen? Absolutely. I do wonder, I, was, I, I guess what I'm asking is, if you say if it's hidden, I'm, I'm thinking if they've done something federally on either side of the border, you would think that they would should be able to have access to that. But then again, that's kind of a HIPAA medical violation. You can't check other countries' paperwork. But there are some things that they have access to right. and things like warrants and, and things like that and criminal records going across the border. Because um, we, talk, we talk with our clients all the time because some of them are in a position where they don't have a criminal record right yet. And okay. so we're like, hey, okay, dude. Get you now. Get you now. Dude, you need to know you're in a perfect spot right now to get out. Yeah, don't mess this up. And this is why. And we'll talk about criminal records. And then we'll talk about youth records versus criminal records. They are different because of our Youth Criminal Justice Act. They are a youth record. They're not a criminal record. And they're sealed at what age? So... It's not necessarily age versus um, were they found guilty, when were they sentenced, when did their sentencing order finish, and then there is, depending on the type of charge, a delay in have they done anything criminal over this period of time, then it can be sealed. Oh, so it gives them an opportunity so, to, hey, I messed up, learn from your behavior, and just stay on the straight and narrow, and then we'll give you a, a fresh start. Yeah, the, the Youth Criminal Justice Act is there for that reason. It's a restorative process. Is it British Columbia only, or is this uh, The Youth Canada Criminal wide? Justice Act is Canada-wide. Okay. You have the Criminal Code of Canada, and you have the Youth Criminal Justice Act. Which falls within it. 12 to... 17 and a day before you turn 18, right? Okay. As soon as you turn 18, you're an adult in the eyes of the law. 
doesn't matter for voting, doesn't matter for like for the Ministry of Children and Family. Doesn't matter going to war, no, picking up matter. guns. No, none of that. Yeah. In the eyes of the law, between 12 and, and the day before you turn 18, you are a youth and can be dealt with under the Youth Criminal Justice Act unless you are between a certain period of time and commit a certain type of offense, you can be bumped up to adult. And that's generally first degree. It, the, yeah, those ones are all the major, um, major, crimes. majorly, you know, assault causing bodily harm or grievous bodily harm, Sexual manslaughter. manslaughter. It, like there, there's a very specific um, core that you potentially can be bumped up to adult. Question: Because I know that you stated previously that your program cannot be used in leeway. Has, has it been approached, though, if somebody has done something that egregious and has fallen into one of those criminal activities and is being charged with one of them, and they're young enough, though, have they come to you and asked you? We, yeah, we've had uh, probation officers uh, like, or bail supervisors say, look, I got this youth on my, on my plate. Um, I think that this is the right time to try and connect with them. Okay, and then they'll suggest it. And they'll, they'll put forward the client. And so we do our background and we go, okay, so we'll sit down. Um, and you'll still help them if they've murdered someone. Yes. Good people. We can't hold judgment. They're already. Yeah, but it, that's rare. You gotta understand it, how rare that is in policing. I know, I know it's, it, it is odd. And I know people look at us like, you're the odd duck. Like you're like the you're like the soft sponge. You're like the hey, I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna hold your hand and I'm gonna help you regardless of your past and your mistakes. And that is rare. That is so so rare. If we if we were to continue, like they're being held accountable in the court system, right? So if I start judging them again, that's like double jeopardy, mm -hmm. right? So you see that though. They are dealing with the court system and they're being held accountable through the court system. That's over here. Okay. That piece is here. Now, here's you. You're a human being. Do you want to make a change? You want to make a change. We're here to support you. How are we in society going to make a change for the better if we don't try and support them and help them? Oh, no, we're definitely not. I'm very aware of that. <laughs> I, I kind of knew you were. Fully but... <laughs> aware. But, okay, I got another question. This is just, you keep bringing up things that make me want to, I really want to pull it apart. Sure. So what happens if someone, okay, say they're in the age bracket where they are youth and they've committed a crime, they've gone through the court system, they're being charged, yeah. and they're going to, say, juvie. Okay, well, so in our case, we've got Burnaby Youth Custody Center. There's a, a youth center on the island. They closed it. See, I, I love haven't we kept up in all that Yeah. So we have youth custody centers in, in BC. And if the youth is found guilty and sentenced to in-custody time, mm -hmm. they would spend it in the youth custody center. So if, if we were working with them before they go into custody, mm -hmm. if they go into custody for, say, a year. So what we'll do is we'll basically put them on pause. Okay. 
because we know while they're in custody, we can't support them outside. Yeah, you can't get. <laughs> but they have to the supports in custody in place, and and if they want to, I mean, truthfully, when it comes to youth and they want to reach out because they've already made a connection, it's a phone call. Yeah. And if that makes them feel safe, that they can continue on in custody and continue to make those healthy choices while they're in custody, then you know what? That's 20 minutes, an hour, however long they want to talk, well spent. But generally, if they haven't become a client before going into custody, what we do is, whether they're adults or youth, is we'll say, um, connect with us about six weeks before they're going to be released. If they're interested, because we have ways of being able to meet with the individuals in person in safe ways mm -hmm. to sit down and assess, because at that point we've confirmed um, that they're eligible for and fit our mandate. They are gang members. <laughs> um, or yeah, well, they're in for possession for the purpose of trafficking. They're literally trafficking. They're, yeah. So we will then sit down and, and, and share the information about our program and how we can support them. Because we touched a bit on the counseling, but there's all kinds of other ways that we can support. Um, and we love to think outside the box. Our team loves that challenge. Every single one of us is like, oh, wait a minute, what about this? Like, oh, and, and, and we have to submit a, a financial request. request, right? And to articulate why spending that funding for that individual is worth it. So we'll sit there and try and think of, oh my God, so if we address it this way and like talk about simple things like sports yeah. and how something like that or having a purpose or skill, how that helps people in their self-confidence mm -hmm. and moving forward, right? Our team loves to do that. We love to think outside the box. So, I mean, we look at things like um, schooling. So at any age, depending on what jurisdiction, like if they're school age, for so I say like high school age, um, depending on what jurisdiction they live in, we may work with their, their school's jurisdiction for alternative programs. Um, if that doesn't fit, we may look at online schooling, if that is something that would work for the client. So I... Fast forward, if a client chooses to work with us, we actually have an assessment that we do with them. It's fairly intrusive, but it's super important um, because it covers, oh, I know my case managers Sorry. listening to this are going to go, come on, Janet. I think it's eight domains. Okay. So things like family, trauma, financial, uh, social, um, physical health, mental health, uh, living conditions, that things they, like that, gang embeddedness and things like that. Um, we sit down and talk with the individual about all of these domains because if we're going to put 
a support plan together. They need to be part of it. We can't sit there and dictate, oh, we think this is what's good for you. Like, come on. They've had enough people in their life tell them what to do and how to do it and not listen. Yeah, this is why we are here now. Exactly. So we sit down and we fill out this assessment based on their needs. And so then we review it and go, okay, well, based on what this client shared with us, these are the areas that are the highest priority that would maybe make them the most vulnerable. Okay. And okay, so then in these areas, how can we help them? So we have clients that it may be school, it may be education. They may be 17 and only have their grade eight because uh, a learning disability or addiction issue or simply they left to work because they needed to bring funds into the family or felt they did. So um, we may need to look at training, education, to get them to a point where they have the confidence to then look at options for their future in how can they make a living wage. So we can look at how we can support them in education piece. Uh, if they have their education but maybe need some tra skills in the trades, uh, we can look at maybe supporting them uh, in Bobcat training. Okay. Or flagging training. Literally or, teaching them a skill. Uh, forklift. Yeah, in, in giving them a marketable skill to be able to go out into the workforce to get a reasonable job. Uh, we help them look for jobs. What do you do in a situation when an individual has already got a record and cannot be hired? We find ways. Mm -hmm. There are individuals out there that are willing to give human beings an opportunity when they want to make those changes. See, that's good. I'm glad to see that people are doing that. I know that's always an issue, right? When you have a it record. Is. It is definitely a hurdle. Um, it is not insurmountable, but it's a little bigger than this table. Yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> right. it's, it's, a, it's a thing. It's a little bit of a thing. I mean, it is a thing. And, and we recognize that. And that's part of the thing where when we support them, that's part of what we look at and how we can mitigate that. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, we mitigate it. Mitigate it. We mitigate um, it. And maybe reduce that hurdle. Mm -hmm. Because does it close some doors? It does. That's reality. Now, you're and, not going to be a tell cop. Them, you're not going to be a police officer. You're not going to be a corrections officer. You're not going to be a sheriff. It's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. However, what are some other areas? Okay, let's look at that. What do you like to do? What are your interests? Like, if it's a trade, then you know what? Trades do tend to be a little more forgiving on that side. So what trade do you like? Electrician, sheet metal, um, uh, welding. Literally um, any of the hands-on trades. I mean, if you look at Alberta, have you been up there? Drugs are more prevalent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> than oil. Yes. That should say everything. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. of course there's going to be jobs and, and things that you can do that are going to be a lot more lenient 
and give you a well-advanced testing notice when things have to happen to keep yes. your jobs. Because yes. at the end of the day, they do understand people have habits, people have things that they do, but it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to work if they're good at their jobs and they're safe at their job and they're clean when they're doing their jobs. Couldn't have said it better yeah, myself. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I know my brother worked up, my brother's a, a welder and now he does crane operating, but he, he worked up in, um, in Alberta there for a while and he was just like, it's insane up here. I've never seen anything like it. It's yeah. wild to me. So I, I'm curious because you work in this type of position, this opens the doors to your, your name being known to those yeah. individuals. So it does. It does. And you can't tell me that doesn't come with a little bit of stress, anxiety, and uh, built up threats. Have you had experienced any of those threats direct? Uh, not necessarily direct. Um, you know what? It, you deal with them as they come. Um, it is the nature of our job. We are interfering with their business that's why i ask you're interfering <laughs> with not only their business but their way of making a livelihood and mm -hmm. having longevity of that if you're taking their kids yeah i mean you can't tell me that that doesn't come with some inherent risk no and and that's part of why we as police are part of the partnership this is the safety side of the house and engaging with our case managers around protocols and thinking um, about safety, about approaching uh, scenarios. I mean, my case manager and I will will be sitting in the car on our way to a client and we'll talk about those things. We'll talk about, you know, well, like if this happened, what would you do? Um, you know, I'll point things out as we're going to clients and my case manager's like, say what now? Where was that? I didn't see that. The guy with the phone? And, no, and, you didn't see him? And so, but it's getting that, and, and that awareness is different. And, um, you know, it's like, a, for us, it's a game. It's like, okay, like, so what can you pick up this time? Thinking, because ultimately, when push comes to shove, if we are all prepared, we can mitigate mm -hmm. the danger. Right? And we think outside that box and that safety bubble and we take it very seriously. We safety plan as a team, as a unit, um, especially in our higher risk individuals because we will have the least associated drug involved individual to we have individuals that are well up there. They're almost running that thing. So and anywhere in between. Uh, our, our safety protocols and, and have to be addressed on a per-client basis. It's not a blanket thing it for you guys. It is not a blanket thing. It is very important that we don't become complacent. Um, so our team is very cognizant of that. and we safety plan and we talk and i know your team does but what do you do with the team like that is no i'm me? talking about you you outside mm -hmm. of your job when you think about this when you are living your day-to-day -day life ah, outside of my workspace and time yeah because you don't you're not with your unit all no. the time you no. go to the grocery store you yep. do these things 
10, not even 10 minutes away, a guy got mm-hmm. shot in the face outside of a Steve Nash in front of a Starbucks and a kid's toy store. Yep. So like that shit happens here. Yeah. So for me, I, and anybody that works with me or drives with me or is in the car with me can tell you, I will call off plate numbers. I will look at vehicles. So your I head's will on a look swivel. at who's driving. I will, like when I get, when I get out of my vehicle, like today, for example, when I pulled in to the parking lot. And backed in as police do. Well, and we don't always do that because it depends on the situation because people talk about that, right? Yeah. But in my case, um, I backed in because I can see the road from the mirrored doors, Mm -hmm. right? So I can see what's behind me and I can see what's in front of me. Uh, Coming in, I can tell you what vehicles were in the lot. Uh, I can tell you if they were occupied or not. Um, Just looking around. When my husband and I go for walks, I am always looking. I... (laughs) I'm always watching. You know, and it, it, it's it's that piece because you don't know who's going to be in that area and who's going to drive by. Mm-hmm. So, like, if we're out for a walk and I'm we're on a main street and somebody pulls up, what are we going to do? <laughs> Nothing. Actually, yeah, we are. We're going to run in opposite directions because now they have two targets instead of one. Ooh, see, this is what I mean. So that's got to be exhausting <laughs> for you, though. How do you handle this? Um, my home is my safe space. My getaway, my little I know about your getaway. Paradise is my safe space. We, I, our family is extremely lucky. We have a safe space. Mm-hmm. And that is truly where my poor husband has to make all the choices. It's fine. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. And he's like, yeah, make decisions. Come on, make a decision. No, I'm I like, I don't right want to. Now. Not right now. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, safety wise, can it be tiring at times? Absolutely. Uh, it can be, and it can take its toll. Um, but the awareness is always there. So I don't always necessarily, necessarily am aware I'm doing it. Right. It's just second <laughs> nature. It's muscle memory. It's habit. Yeah. yeah. Do you, what do you do for yourself to mitigate your mental health? Like, what do you do specifically? Because oh. you've been on the job for how long now? 17 oh just over 17 and a half years yeah so you're not new to this this is no this is you've seen some shit yes yeah exactly so what are you doing what do i do because you're super fit i know you've lost a bunch of weight yes yeah you should be so proud of that thank you congratulations thank you very much i you know i've always been an active individual um i played soccer for 38 years i haven't probably in the past seven or eight simply because I had knee surgery and the specialist is like look if you continue to play soccer the way you play you're going to be back here for the uh, the next knee exactly um so I had I mean when the kids were little I learned got coaching certificates and things like that and learned some different sports because my kids were interested in stuff and I ended up um 
Matthew, our, our son, at like a really young age, didn't know where it came from, wanted to play hockey. It was like, uh, none of us in our family had ever played hockey. We didn't know what the heck we were doing. Um, but it was like, well, oh, okay, here we go. Right. Uh, but I started watching some of the coaches, and it's just like, oh, my God. Hockey especially. Like, I just want my son to have fun. I want my son to learn and gain skills, but I want the kid to have fun. So along the way, I learned. Uh, I learned how to skate. I I took um, my coaching levels in hockey, um, how to, you know, stick handle, and all of that to, to be a coach. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, I kind of like this. Then my daughter wanted to play ringette. Perfect. And I'm like, hmm, I got to learn how to play ringette. <laughs> I like ringette. Kind of like went along those lines, right? So then I learned how to play ringette, and I took my coaching certificate in, in coaching ringette and, and learned that with my daughter and, and uh, got to enjoy that. So then I started playing ringette. Uh, and then I'm like, oh, this isn't enough. And then I'm like, I got to try hockey. So now I play hockey. And you I played at the police hockey. world and fire games. I did. Yeah. Not great. You uh, played at the world I police had a and blast. fire games. That's a really yes. big, big deal. We had a blast. I loved it. Oh, my God. It was so much fun. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I really enjoy um, playing hockey. I've, I've never been coached um, professionally. Uh, what I've learned, uh, okay, Matthew, don't let your ears swell. They're uh, going to swell. Here they come. <laughs> um, he's taught me a fair bit. Uh, I've learned kind of just playing with um, other women have taught me. Uh, just kind of absorbed and having fun with it and I play a, uh, in a women's uh, 45 and over league in Langley nice yeah Canland twin rings and it was trying to get up and running before the whole COVID stuff and there's been some blips in it and ups and downs but we're back up and running and uh, I got to play Monday night and nice. it just uh, it just it feels so good when you finish the game and just you had fun you laughed and good exercise and yeah so i I do that to help my stress um i've started to learn how to play pickleball it's pretty funny totally getting schooled by old people is hilarious i know i want to play oh they are awesome we were talking about that before yeah they like they are so good Man, the spins, they can put on them. They can teach you a lot. It's like my father-in-law in, in um, what does he play? Squash. He's vicious. Oh. I'm like, you don't move that fast anywhere else. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, it is really cool to see. They can teach us a lot. And I have fun with that. So I try and do that. And then, I mean, I, I do some other kind of, uh, I mean, I do coloring and uh, I do that because when I'm coloring, my brain shuts down. All I'm thinking about is what's in front of me. So if I'm struggling a little bit, like that really just shuts me down. Because, I mean, I like to read. 
it's hard. It's yeah, hard it's when you're dealing with stuff to actually, I've read this page like 10 times. That's it. Forget it. Like I, you know, mm-hmm. I just need to go into some other land. And I mean, my, my husband and I, um, I had been off for some stuff. And at that time we, I needed, like, we were walking every day. He, he would take me, like, even when I just was not capable of making a decision, he was like, I'm taking you for a walk. Done. And he's a lot like, bigger than you, so he'll like, just physically move you. Oh, my God. I, I mean, I couldn't have survived without him. He, he, he's always been my rock, and just a much bigger rock during a really, really bad time for me. And uh, But the walking wasn't enough. Um, it just, I needed something else. And so we have an opportunity to get um, wood, different types of wood, um, from beach scavenging and stuff. And we were thinking, like, oh, like, why don't we look at what kinds of crafts and things uh, we can make with um, wood we get from our paradise and you guys and in your paradise i won't say where it is because i won't tell anybody but in your paradise you guys also have there are barges that are coming from the old growth forest oh oh yes so coming by our paradise we we gather all kinds of different uh wood uh it comes from log booms um a a good day is when a two barge of cedar wood chips floats by on its way to a destination Mm -hmm. the aroma we can just sit on the swing and that aroma is so it it it, it's that um trigger of something so positive in our world permeates oh it is just like it's the best ever and so we'll go scavenging for different types of wood. And it, it's, it's quite comical because other people may look at us and think we're a little, you know. It's fine. Looney tune. Uh, we live in BC. But it's fine. yeah, we will cut uh, rounds off of a log. And we started to make clocks, wood clocks and wood coasters. So just, just as... Our therapy. My therapy and gave them to the family. And I got a clock today. You did. That was our way of sharing our appreciation with you. Well, I love it. I'm. It's it's beautiful. It's gorgeous, and it smells amazing. I know Matt has brought in pieces of cedar for me, and then cedar shakes, and I burn them, and it smells so <laughs> good. I can't get over how strong it is and how welcoming it is. It's. It's that connection piece that people forget that there is. It's not just sight. It's not just. It's not just sound. It's. It's you know olfactory things. Earth. Oh, you need to have those. You need to be able to smell it. Mm-hmm. It. It's a whole other thing. And when he brought those in, he's like, "Listen, this is gonna be. This is gonna smell really strong." I was like, "I want it all. <laughs> Give it all to me because it's so relaxing." Mm-hmm. Something, something so beautiful about it. And I know I saw some, he showed us a photo of the side of your little place that oh. you're working on. God, you guys are doing some really great art with that. And I know, I know art therapy works and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really glad to hear that you yeah. found it. 
Oh, yeah, like it's um, many, many hours. Um, you're not thinking about anything else. Mm -hmm. Like it's like the amount of sanding you have to do to get the chainsaw cuts out of a mm-hmm. out of a round like a, um it's not a it's not a clean cut right like 99.9% of our cuts are chainsaws mm-hmm. uh, so we take have to take a bit to get some of these gouges out so you could be doing hours upon hours of sanding and all you're focused on is the sander and okay what you know what grid am i needing to do next okay well looking at the piece of wood you know with a fine tooth comb Mm -hmm. okay well no there's still like i gotta get this out and no this isn't good enough yet and i i want this to be smooth right right and so all your focus is just so intense on this that nothing else matters isn't that a beautiful thing and it's huge like before doing it my anxiety could be at a 12 mm-hmm. and by the time i'm finished with it it's down to a five and like that's huge well that's it's huge. it's the it's the reason you're able to continue to do your job every day that well the reason i'm able to continue doing my job is probably my husband and my family you are not support system but having other options uh, for outlets is definitely a piece of that and that's what it takes it takes more than one thing you can have one thing that you can focus on but that isn't everything it can't be everything and that's where I find people struggle when it comes to recovering or trauma they if they don't have family support if they they only have their jobs mm-hmm. you know if they only if they have one way to look at things mm-hmm. one you know they're stuck in that 24 7 mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm very happy to hear that you have those other ways of mitigating your stress on a regular basis and it's it's sustaining what's you know mm-hmm. necessary for you um, and allowing you to do the good work that you're doing with the gang intervention and um, exiting program with uh, with British Columbia I know I know it's necessary your work mm-hmm. But I also am very aware and cognizant of the fact that it takes a lot out of human beings to do what you guys do. Yes. Uh, I mean, this is not necessarily physical, you know, like general duty and you're going call to call and domestics and and things like that that are in the moment, your adrenaline's rushing. And it's not necessarily that all the time. It can be when we're doing needs because our adrenaline will go up depending on the the risk level. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the brain drain, the the emotional drain, is probably the highest. Um, everyone that's doing this job right now loves it. Mm-hmm. And we all talk about how lucky we are to be doing the job we're doing because we all believe in it. And we are also all very aware the toll it can take. So we do talk with one another about making sure we take time to address our own needs because mm-hmm. that is difficult police officers like to be in control no not type a personalities (laughs) at all 
uh, it's hard. And every one of us has our own stuff and is at different points in our life with our families and stuff. Mm. So it's being aware that, you know, trying to respect each other and where we're all at. Everybody's had different experiences, uh, some more than others. Some it's more historical, some it's more current. So, yeah. It still yeah. affects each other, right? And you're all partners in this, so yes. you have to make sure that you're all solid. Yes. Because one can, one can cause the issue, right? It doesn't take much, seriously. Somebody can be complacent one day, just not paying attention. That's all it takes. Domino effect. Oh, it, yeah. One wrong move, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. like that in, in any of those jobs that you're doing, you know, mm -hmm. any of the civil servant jobs, it feels like that you're up against community-based issues that you're yeah. interfering with. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be dangerous no matter what you do. And there's challenges and, you know, I, I mean, in any job for anybody, there can be challenges. Some, are they a roadblock? Yeah, some are. But some more dangerous some, than others. We find ways. <laughs> we become... Just talking about the gangs. You're like, we find ways. We, we become adaptable yes. and take it on as a challenge. <laughs> There's, it's, I love the positive attitude and the spin you put on all your words. It's just... Uh, it's, it's enlightening. Well, I'm over here going, yeah, but there's 14 fucking gangs taking the kids out of BC. And you're like, yeah, I don't even worry about it. We got it. Well, there's probably more. But there's definitely you know more. And the thing is, is we could look at the bigger picture and it could become Mount Vesuvius. Oh, absolutely. Right? And, and the thing is for us, we know is one client at a time. 100%. And because... It's very rare for a client to come in and go from bottom to top in a straight line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no straight lines in this, right? Like there's hiccups and we know that. We do not expect perfection from our clients. We do not expect them to go from down here to up there with no blips. Uh, we're human beings, we have our own blips. We get that, we work with it and um, it may not be the right time for them. They may not be ready. That's okay. And we tell them that. You know what? You're not ready for us. There may be a time where, where you become ready for us. We're here. Give us a call. I have one last question for you. Do you think that the reason that you're able to be so patient and compassionate over such a long term in the police department is because you didn't join as a kid? I definitely came at it with a different set of eyes. I mean, I, I was 39 when I became a police officer. Um, I went to training when my kids were teenagers. I got the best end of the deal. My poor husband. Yeah, yeah, um, you did. Yeah, the kids were uh, 16 and, uh, well, turning 16 and, and 17 when I left. So I totally got the better end of the deal. Uh, <laughs> And, but it, yeah, like a different awareness, a different um, set of skills, life skills. I, I don't have a degree. I am, I wasn't ready. I am not necessarily a book learner. 
Okay. I am a hands-on. Uh, like when I went for training, I tell you, when it came to the law and the exams, wow. One, I hadn't taken an exam in 20 years, but... Um, There's that. It was... I was lucky that I had experiences before that around um, working in policing environment to be able to draw from personal versus trying to remember the book stuff. Um, and I actually did very well, thankfully. So I, like that was my only area I was concerned about because so much more of the policing uh, training is hands-on mm -hmm. um, and I'm okay with that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, I come in and, and I, like, I mean, I, I don't know how much Matthew shared about kind of my role and in, in, in into policing and, and sort of where I started and how I got where I am. He didn't. He said mom just started as a cop later. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I was... I, I was looking at it very differently because prior to um, prior to becoming a police officer, I um, I did daycare for eight years. So I've always worked with You've always little people. Um, I I really enjoyed it. It gave me an opportunity to be home with our kids, and I also did um, little side jobs outside of um, the day the daycare. So I did like little things like tiny tot soccer, mm -hmm. tiny tot t-ball, roller hockey, uh, summer camps through the, the rec center that we lived by, you know, skate patrol and just all these little things around rec and little people to make sure that I could be home for my kids. Because my husband's job at the time was very um, long. He was working in the fish industry in plants where, you know, when the fish are running, he, I mean, at one point, I think it was 72 days straight. Oh my God. I, I, I mean, I could be wrong. It may have felt like that, mm -hmm. but there was a point and it was like 14, 16 hour days. So, you know, that's in our, at the beginning when we were just a really young family, um, he was doing the main job. So we had mine kind of like a jigsaw puzzle fit mm -hmm. in where his, his was. And because, I mean, when we, we got married young and we both kind of were like, well, if we wait till we're financially secure to have kids, right? when's that going to be, right? But we felt ready to have kids, so we did. And, uh, you know, our daughter, uh, firstborn, and Matthew came along 15 and a half months later, and, you know, it, we enjoyed being parents young, ultimately. Were there some growing pains? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we were learning with the kids, mm -hmm. but we, we had fun. We had more fun times than not. And so all of the jobs kind of just worked around the kids. And, and at one point when the kids were kind of around 12, 13-ish, um, the rec center was getting privatized. So it was like, oh, now what do we do? 
and we were at a point where you know the kids were starting to get old enough to leave at home and my all my daycare kids were kind of aging out and so I looked at becoming a clerk in you know like in a clerk pool with the city and just I, I could, can't picture I that. could type right like I, I mean I could type uh, like 88 words per minute in the old school thing mm-hmm. right for straight typing because my grandma taught me and it just so it was like right type away so I did I got in and uh, I was working there and I ended up getting a full-time position in in a policing detachment in the records department and I'm like well this is pretty cool (laughs) so Fast forward, a member was up in records one day and said, uh, God damn it, we need more auxiliaries. And he points at me and he's like, you, you're a female, we need more females. Yeah, we need women. And I'm like, uh, what's it entail? <laughs> like, I really had no idea. So he explained to me and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, giving back to the community and helping out. So I went home and I talked to my husband and like, what do you think of that? And trainings on weekends and away you go so he's like yeah no I'm all for it like go for it so two and a half months in did my training and I'm helping out and I'm like oh hmm. you liked it you got the bug huh <laughs> exactly and I I go home and it's like Rob and I of course go out for a walk and as we usually do and uh, he's like you want to be an officer don't you and I'm like yeah <laughs> That means like I'm I'm like I'm in Regina training and I I can't leave you and at the time my husband's job he had transitioned um, over um, a few companies and he was in a company at that point where he was doing a lot of traveling and it was like well no you travel for your job and yeah back and forth mm-hmm. and he's like look we'll work it out you've spent how many years supporting me it's your turn and I'm like looking at this guy going how did I get so lucky right right like you know truly we are a partnership in in everything we do and as we've grown with the kids in our life and our marriage we're a partnership so here he comes again right here's our partnership and I was like okay are you sure like oh my god I'm super nervous do I make this leap and I'm like, okay, it's now or never. Yeah. Right? Like, at the time, I'm 38. So I'm like, okay, I got to start the process. So I may not, like, I have to write an exam. Oh, I'm like, oh, no, here we go. So I write this exam thinking, uh, I'm walking out after three and a half hours going, I think I find need to find something else because I don't think. Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I got to find something else. I don't think I passed, right? Right. Uh, so I was like uh, waiting, waiting for the results. And it's like, I get this letter. And in RCMP world, people got to understand, usually they make you wait for like ever in a day. Mm-hmm. And three weeks after I wrote the exam, I get a letter. And That's I'm fantastic. Like, I'm like, <gasps> I don't want to open it. Oh, no. Like, they're just going to say, sorry, you didn't make the grade, right? Yeah. Things like that. So I open it, and it's like, 
holy shit. It is, oh my God, I did so good. They're sending me a package right away. That's huge. And I'm like, I, I'm looking at this thing and I have to digress because in the whole process, um, I don't know how familiar you are, but in, in the policing processes, there's, there's physical um, right. tests that you have to do as part of our, your package to be accepted. You have to pass a certain thing. And I had previously in the RCMP world, it's called the PAIR, the physical ability requirement. So I had done it previously and I hadn't passed. I had, I had just come back. My mom had had a stroke and my brain was like a, you know, and I was not in a good headspace. And when I did it, I didn't pass. And I was bummed and came home and I was talking to my husband and just, I was down about it. And he's like, you know what? You'll be okay. Like, you'll be okay. Unbeknownst to me, I come home from work one day. What's built in my backyard? <laughs> my husband, my awesome husband, has built me the pair minus the weights in my backyard. So you could practice. So I could practice. You want to see you succeed. Like, nothing says I love you. No. Like that. Like, I mean, I was dumbfounded. Like, I just, it was, it was, oh my God. I couldn't, yeah. Like, it was phenomenal. So I practiced and practiced, and man, I was struggling with the horse. Like, I'm vertically challenged too, yeah, right? And you totally get that. And, you know, one of the things is a hurdle, and it's like, oh, man, how am I going to get over this freaking thing, right? I'm going to do it. Oh, I'm going to do it, right? So I practice and practice and practice, and oh boy, D-Day comes, right? I go off to E-Division headquarters, and at that time, it's in Vancouver, and I run, the, I run the pair, and I'm thinking, oh, right? And then I find out, not only did I do run it in the recruitment time, I ran it in a regular member time. There and you go. I, I'm like, well, speechless, because I'm like sucking wind, because, you know, <laughs> it's running the pair, and the pair cough, and dry mouth, and all of that. And so, of course, the first thing I do is I get out and find a phone and, and pull my husband. And he goes, I knew you would. And I'm like, thank you, but okay. Then he tells me he made the horse a little bit higher and the mat a little bit longer for Oh, me. so that you would have the space. So when the day came, I sa sailed over the horse. I sailed over the mat. I'm just like, oh, my God, you Thanks. bugger. He's, isn't that amazing, though, <laughs> to have a partner like that? Like, phenomenal. Like, I mean, just he wanted to see me succeed, and it just so I did. Like I, like it was just phenomenal, and I went, and he took care of me. I phoned once a week. He he hid so much stuff from me. Oh my god! Oh, I can imagine. Oh my god! Having two kids at home. Oh, he hid so much stuff from me because he didn't want to worry me. Every Sunday, it was awesome. I like you know, and uh, fast forward, I graduated, and I got back to a local detachment, which is so lucky. Which it was the detachment that I worked at, 
and the detachment that I was an auxiliary. And it, it, I mean, it was comical because um, I, I knew how the paperwork flowed and I knew where I was driving. Mm-hmm. And as a more mature person, I tell you, coming into an area you know and not having to worry about that and only worry about the policing side of things, oh my God, <laughs> it was a lifesaver, right? I don't know about my trainer. He was really frustrating because there were so many times he was telling me where to go and I'm like, mm, we're going to get stuck by a train. No, you're wrong. You're wrong, sir. You're wrong. <laughs> so, I mean, that was pretty funny. We had a few good laughs over that, but... Uh, it was, yeah, like, I, you know, I get in and for policing wise, of course, you know, you all start general duty and it was, uh, I mean, good learning experience. Um, it was pretty funny because they put me in the area where my kids were going to high school. Oh, fantastic. And because of all the community coaching that I did in high school. I knew a lot of individuals. Um, so it could have been really bad or it could have been good. And it actually turned out pretty good because I was decent with the kids. I didn't, I wasn't a, a jerk with them, right? Like when Respectful. I dealt with them, you know, at parties and stuff, it's like, Hey, Mrs. Northrup's here. And I'm like, yeah, well, but, but today... right now it's constable to you. And they're like, Oops, am I in trouble? And I'm like, depends. Hand that over, please. Yeah. <laughs> right? And I, you know, you just, so much is in how you treat them and what you get back from them and just that kind of thing. So, but I've always worked with youth. I've always worked with kids. Like, that's kind of, like, I, I really enjoy that. Like, that's where um, my satisfaction in helping in that area. So, I, you know, did general duty for a, a bit, and the inspector uh, where I was working at the time, they were doing a big change up in the youth section, and they were changing up the youth unit, and the inspector asked me what I thought about, like, would I want to work in the youth unit? I'm looking at him like, dude, you got five heads. Uh, yes. <laughs> Like, it's perfect for me. Like that is like that's my forte, absolutely. So, um, I ended up just under two years. Ended up moving over to the youth unit, which is fairly quick, right? Yes. Generally, they like to have you on um, GD, probably somewhere three, three to five years, kind of thing. But I guess too because they were also familiar with me and my experience because it was the same detachment that I worked as a as a records clerk and the same detachment that I was also the auxiliary. Right. So they knew I, I worked with youth. They knew I did a lot of community coaching and things like that. So yeah, I started in the youth unit and worked in schools and I was just, oh my God, I was happier than a pig in mud. It was the best thing ever for me and then they gave me in in the detachment I worked in there was different areas for schooling um, more like inner city type um, 
immigrants, concerns, um, things like learning disabilities, where maybe the has and have nots kind of thing. The vulnerable people, very vulnerable. And I got to work in that area. Oh my God, I loved it. The staff, the schooling uh, were so welcoming. I was like, I'd walk around the halls, I'd go into classrooms, I'd read to the kids. I would, I would help them with math. I would participate in, you know, like if they had um, competitions, you know, just anything to engage so that they learned that officers are human beings mm -hmm. and that it's okay if something bad is happening in your life to speak with us. Right. And we're a safe space for them. So I was able to do that for up until about 2008 and my boss and I, we had been talking because like, there was a real big group of at-risk youth that we were missing that weren't in school. And what are we doing to support them? What are we doing to help them? So she put a business case plan together based on, you know, we sat down and talked about what it is we kind of wanted to look at and see, and it got approved. So she said, hey, John, do you want to, we have approval like for the first one, do you want to go for it? I'm like, Ah, uh, yes, That's awesome. absolutely, right? Like, here I am, only, you know, a few years under my belt and getting an opportunity to build a unit. I was just, like, ecstatic. Like, oh, my God. So I reached out to all kinds of different locations uh, to learn from different policing agencies that had uh, some type of youth risk program, mm -hmm. something going on. And the biggest one at the time was, of course, VPD. They had the biggest youth unit around. So I reached out um, to a social worker and a police officer at the time, a constable at the time, that they uh, were in a, a Yankee, Yankee 30 car? <laughs> I was like trying to remember the Yankee cars um, together. And I rode with them for a day nice. to pick their brains and see what was working, what wasn't. And obviously, I mean, much bigger detachment than what I was in. But what could I take away from them to be able to put in place in the detachment I was in that would work for us? Right. So ironically, that constable at the time, he's my boss right now. <laughs> He's my staff sergeant. That's perfect. Shout out to Staff uh, Houghton. He, he's the best. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's pretty ironic. He's, we've come full circle, and I, I'm working for him. And But he, he had the vision of this particular unit, and I love his vision, obviously, and love working for him. It. So, yeah. So I got to do that, and I did that for up until, oh, gosh. Well, there was a couple blips, uh, but I, I transferred over to CFSEU in October of 2018. 
Okay. So, yeah. So what's the walkout? Oh, the walkout. So we talk about um, trauma and we talk about PTSD and it always has a stigma. So I promised myself that I would I would share a bit um, about that so that people understand it happens to anybody. Mm-hmm. And it's not any one thing. In my case, I, I had some experiences with individuals that worked that I worked with um, that undermined my self-confidence were you in that lawsuit no that was totally separate um, it is and it was done over a period of time where my self-confidence was eroded away without me necessarily recognizing it um, because it was done in such a manner that it was just little things that on the surface people go, whatever, right? No big deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, But over time came to the point where uh, on November 2nd, 2016 at 12 noon, I walked out of my detachment thinking I was never coming back. I was done. So that was an eye-opener for me. Worked, I was off for a bit, and uh, it was a combination of things that I had not been aware of, that in speaking with professionals, that, um, and thanks to my son, I knew I needed to speak with a professional, Mm -hmm. that I couldn't do it on my own. Um, I did reach out, and in policing, we're so used to being in control. And I was not in control. Mm-hmm. My emotions, um, all of that peace. And over time, it, I had to recognize that in my case, yes, I did end up getting diagnosed with PTSD. I didn't think that because I did not have a big trauma event. You didn't have one catalyst point, point no, two? No, I did not. And I, it, it, my son had, and so I looked at his and went, well, it's not the same, so how does that compute? Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like mine's just like minor, nothing compared to his. So then it was eventually brought up to my awakening, Mm. uh, shall we say, in my line of work, um, I was asked, how many funerals of youth that I work with did I go to? Mm -hmm. How many youth did I sit with in the hospital that had tried to kill themselves? And I was like, uh, why are you asking this? I don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And there it was right there. Bingo. So when you combined that experience that accumulated over time, 
with something that you don't expect from individuals that are supposed to be your support. Is that superior still in? It's a mess. Like there was, there is probably three individuals um, that were involved. And that haven't been held accountable? Not, no. And all male? No. One female? Two female? Three? No, I, one. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so then you have that, and because it was done over time, you your self confidence is so eroded you can't function effectively and i knew that i could not help the youth that i was supposed to be helping so i walked out the door i'm sorry that you had to feel like that i'm sorry that they made you feel like that I'm angry that those people are still in leadership positions within the RCMP, which in, in my opinion is fucking disgusting. But that again goes towards our federal government's inability to hold people accountable for things. That's my opinion. You don't have to talk on that. That's fine. You're still in. I will more than gladly talk about that. Um, I think it's unfortunate that you've had to endure a lot of loss. And what people don't realize is that's much harder to endure when you're involving yourself with young youth like this and you're also a mother of two. Mm -hmm. There, Whether you like it or not, there's only so much compartmentalization that can be done when you go to a job like that. So you mm -hmm. see your own kids in those kids, whether you like it or not. That's Absolutely. just... Yeah, I do. That's just the reality. I didn't experience that until recently when I, we did the Afghan pullout because I didn't have children when I dealt with Afghanistan. And now I have a child when I dealt with the Afghan pullout and had to help with a child. And that is a different feeling, and that is a different thing when you have your own, and now you are in charge of helping others. Mm -hmm. That's a different thing. It takes a different toll. It is, and again, it's not a physical toll. No. And we still don't know. And you touched on it really briefly previously about our brain. We still don't know so much about our brain no. and how it works and how it's affected. Um, because it, it's so individualized. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was, yeah, like it, it was, it was that walking out. I phoned my husband. I said, I'm on my way home. I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. He goes, I'll see you when you get home. <laughs> How do you feel about working for the same police force that has allowed your trauma to occur and continue to keep them in leadership? How do you do that every day? It may be a little different because of where I work now. And because I'm working um, with CFSEU and OCA, yes, ultimately I am an RCMP officer. I have been given the opportunity to do something that I love. It was like doing my old job, but on steroids, I say to people. <laughs> um, in a capacity where that doesn't necessarily come up. Oh, okay. So it's not a trigger? No. Well, that's not good. that piece. 
That yeah. piece is not. The Every other aspect of it sounds like it is. <laughs> so it's fascinating to see how you handle it. And that's why I ask you so specifically about what you do as yeah. an individual because I did know there was a background there. Yes. And I do know that you continue to keep yourself in that situation. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be some way to, again, mitigate the results of that on a daily basis. Yes. And you, and you being able to find those is is really good. It, it, it's necessary. important because without it, I would not be working. No, I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> no, nope. fr- frankly, and 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 this is maybe completely my opinion base, and then mm-hmm. take it for what it is. Frankly, I'm surprised they allowed you to stay in the same position. Um. Well, coming back, so I mean, there's hoops we have to jump through, of course, and. They had done some changes up in our section prior to me coming back. And so when I came back, it was a little different, but I knew I needed to do something else. Like I couldn't, I, mm-hmm. I couldn't stay there. And I had been looking to do something else. And at the time, um, the sergeant in charge of the media had come into our section to talk to our team about the um, the program. And I knew her because of the World Police and Fire Games. We had actually uh, been on the same team. And she had said to me, like, look, we need to talk about this because this is real and a mm-hmm. position may be coming up. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm all excited again. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't been excited in a while, right? And, and this was potential. So I was able to explore this new position and ultimately um, you know because I think we talked in January of 2018 and I ended up applying for the job in August or September and got the job in October oh wow so um, it was like it 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 was like it, it screamed like Janet, you need to do this. It was your light. <laughs> it was your way of getting back in again. Yeah, exactly. And it was with a, you know, a different unit, a different detachment where I could have a fresh start. So, yeah. I, I'm so glad that you did because this is such a spectacular program and it's so diverse and it's well thought out and it's smart from a safety perspective. It's inclusive of everyone that needs help and and I'm just looking at your pamphlet here and the Mm -hmm. way that you guys run your programs and stuff and it's really interesting like you said you've got the 14 we were talking about the law agencies and over 400 officers that are doing this to to stop the gang life from continuing and I'm so glad and it says here there's something I just want to point out because I know we want to make sure people know that they can reach out and yes. if you want to reach out and you think your child or somebody you know is at risk or involved with gangs or drug trafficking, so this doesn't have to be just gangs, this can be trafficking, because yes. that often leads to gang life. Um, it, there is tons of things available for you, and they've got teams, and there's a helpline, and it's we're, we'll post about it, but the local number is 604-879-6023, and I know that there is the website, it's www.endganglife.ca or www.cfseu.bc.ca. There's also a website, um, sorry, an email address, gangintervention at cfseu.bc.ca, and we'll make sure to put all of those in the descriptors and links so that people can use you guys as a resource. 
Is Thank there, you. You're welcome. Is there anything else that people need to know about this program and what you're doing and, and why it's so important? The biggest thing is to know they're not alone and they can get out. It's not going to be easy, but there's supports available. Well, I'm glad that there's supports available because without you, it seems like there would be a lot of our youth, we would be losing our youth to things that we just frankly do not need to be losing them to. So we don't. I'm really glad that you're doing the work as difficult and um, hard as it is on personal life and emotions you are doing the work nonetheless and on top of it you're doing the work to make sure that you can be a healthy productive responsive and calm police officer and i'm so glad that there is funding still being given i'm so glad that you have not been defunded i'm so glad that you guys are being given the tools to do the job properly and hopefully prevent you know negative behavior from spreading we don't need it we need more light we need more people like you so Thank you from the bottom of my heart for allowing me to have your son as part of my life and for the freaking awesome clock and for just <laughs> doing doing um, the police a service by showing that there are, as many do know, but there are tons and tons of incredible police officers mm -hmm. that mean well, do well, and are going to continue to spread the positive light. So thank you so much for coming on, Janet. Thank you for having me.